my grand ambition is for the next 50 years of my life is to impact positively a billion people in the world. Every piece of writing is a call for the kind of person that you want to bring into your life. Bringing the essence of an idea very quickly and concisely to somebody. Try to distill it to someone. See where you didn't make sense or where they were like looking confused. Yeah, I call this writing from conversation. You're talking to people and you're getting a sense for what's landing, what's not landing. Forced constraints are a really good way to stoke creativity. It was why I loved Twitter when I first started was because you had to distill your writing into such little bite-sized thoughts. So what do you do as a creator to stay on the cutting edge of distribution? I don't know how many people know this. Wait, hold on, (laughs) hold on, that's really good, man. Hey, man. I'm so happy to be here, finally meeting it's you in person. It's great to finally meet you. I know, I know. Ah, <laughs> it's great to finally it's, meet you. This is like the classic COVID story friendship. I feel yeah. like I've talked to you probably most days since like mid-2020, and we've somehow never met in person. Yeah, man. So I'm thrilled. What was the first thing that you ever wrote where you felt an enthusiasm for writing? I mean, this probably goes back to like way before any of the public stuff I've done. So... I don't know how many people know this, actually, but I wrote, I used to write a, like, what I've been reading newsletter. I didn't know it was even called a newsletter, frankly. Like, I used to, I started by sending it out to 10 family and friends because I'm a pretty avid reader. I would read kind of like weird books that were off the beaten path and a bunch of family and friends. I'd talk to them about it whenever we'd get together. And... So then they started saying like, oh, we want to know what you're reading. So I literally like went on MailChimp and I set up like a little thing. I like hand typed in 10 email addresses and I started sending out this once a month thing of the books I read with like my little takeaways and then like a rating on the book. This is like probably in 2014, 15 that Mm -hmm. I started sending that out. And every like few days, someone would bring it up and they'd want to share it with a friend. They'd ask me to like add a friend email. I sent it every single month from like when I started until 2020 when I didn't have time to do it anymore because of new stuff that had taken off. So like for five plus years, I sent it and it like slowly grew to be, I don't know, there was probably like 2000 people or something that were on this list. And it was like, real people you know like at that point it was like people colleagues work like ceos of the companies we were working with etc um but it was just a true passion thing like labor of love that i was doing and i really got a lot of energy out of it i just didn't know that that would then become a big part of my future like sending out things on a weekly basis yeah have you heard the story of uh, howard marks no this is sort of what he did so he had a memo that he used to literally hand mail to people he'd lick the envelope and everything you know throw the stamp on the top right corner and he wrote it for like a decade without anybody reading it and morgan housel has this piece called selfish writing where he says that this is the kind of writing that works really well he was just doing it for himself he didn't care that people weren't weren't reading and that was just sort of how it was but he genuinely loved it and that's what kept him going and now he's howard marks but It started with a decade of no one reading his stuff. I'm fascinated by people like Howard Marks. I mean, frankly, Warren Buffett is probably the OG of this, where when we think of a content creator, we think of, um, you know, some with the creator economy, whatever we want to call it today. We think of like a YouTuber, Mm -hmm. like a newsletter writer, one of those things. And really like the OG content creators... Warren Buffett was the OG content creator. He started (laughs) writing his annual shareholder letters in whatever, like 1960. And... It attracted an enormous number of people to this 
cult of Berkshire Hathaway. And it's hard to deny the fact that it has expanded the value, the enterprise value of the things that he's done and built over that period of time to the point now where he has 50,000 people show up in Omaha, Nebraska mm -hmm. to listen to him speak. But it was all based around content that he was creating on an annual basis, attracting people to the ideas he was putting out into the world. And when he started, there was no way that he thought that it would end up where it was, right? Yeah. It was just something, it was his way of thinking. It was clarifying thinking along the way. I imagine Howard Marks was the same. I imagine, you know, the most esoteric financial writing that I've ever seen that I loved was Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Mm. You, you've never worked in finance, but, um, you know, it's this guy, I think his name is Jim Grant, and he started writing this thing. I imagine when he originally wrote it, it was like Howard Marks, like a hand-mailed letter that he would send on, I mean, it was interest rates originally was the main thing, but he would write this tome piece once a month, I think. And it became the Bible of the financial world, where like the biggest fund managers, the biggest, you know, the biggest ballers on Wall Street mm -hmm. were paying tens of thousands of dollars a year to have access to this thing. I don't know what the subscription is now. It is extraordinarily expensive to get access and he still writes it it's a once a month thing that comes out but i imagine when he started it was just that it was like yes i'm just gonna write the things that i love writing on a monthly basis send them out to whoever cares and it builds over time this slow slow steady build when you were working in private equity were you doing a lot of writing there only for myself so okay. i've always been someone who has found my thinking clarified through writing. In private equity and in early consulting and in all these career tracks, everything's about like the PowerPoint presentation. Mm -hmm. And I never found that that was a thing that was conducive to me actually thinking clearly sure. about a problem. So before I would make a PowerPoint presentation, I would actually write a memo. If I had to do an investment thesis presentation, my first step personally was I would have to write a one-page memo to myself on why I wanted to do this investment, why I thought it made sense. And when I did that, it would become very clear to me if it was actually a good investment or not. If I could really simply clarify why we should be doing the investment, yes or no. You just immediately know because it forces you to distill and clarify. It was why I loved Twitter when I first started was because you had to distill your writing into mm -hmm. such little bite-sized thoughts that if you weren't clear on your thinking around it, you couldn't do it. It just wasn't possible. So I, I mean, I was probably atypical for having uh, a writing habit during my investing in private equity days. Now it's become much more commonplace. I think people sure. are starting to realize that. I mean, Chamath kind of uh, popularized the one pager that mm -hmm. he was doing during COVID around all of his SPACs and a lot of his investments. And I think it started to build the idea of written memos rather than PowerPoint presentations. I mean, I see more founders today than ever before pitching their fundraising with a memo rather than a rather than a deck. Yeah, one of the things I'll do if I'm working on a piece and I'm stuck on something, I'll have this feeling that whatever it is that I'm writing needs to get shorter, more distilled, and I will literally pop open Twitter and mm. I will write that out and try to meet the character constraint mm. and just shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And I find that to be really useful, just the form factor of Twitter to just help me compress my ideas. And I think, I don't know if you write in Google Docs, if you write on the platforms where you're sharing your pieces. But I remember I was once on a walk with Tyler Cowen and he said, yeah, I write all my blog posts in WordPress directly. And then I just hit send. And he's like, something about WordPress gets my brain into the state of mind that I need in order to do it well. Mm. That's fascinating. Um... You know, it makes me think of uh, 
Have you heard of the creative, the creative cliff illusion? No, what's this? It was this whole study that was done that basically people think that your most creative ideas come early in a creative session. So you're like, oh, I sit down, I'm feeling really creative, I get my coffee, mm -hmm. I'm ready to rip, and I'm gonna sit down and the creative ideas are gonna start flowing, and then I'm gonna get tired, and my creativity is gonna fall off a cliff and I need to just move on. And if you ask people, what they did was they went and asked people to map how their creativity would go over, over time, and they all basically said it was gonna go like this, like just a mm -hmm. downward slope. And what actually happens is that you hit a point where you're like struggling and then your creative ideas start really ramping. And it's through that kind of like trudging through the mud of the creative session that you end up unlocking your most creative ideas. So for you, what made me think of it was that whole idea of like when you get stuck, then you go into Twitter and you start trying to really mm -hmm. distill it and work with it. Like you're allowing yourself to sit with it and trudge through the mud metaphorically mm -hmm. in order to get to that creative unlock. Ed Sheeran has an analogy where he says it's like running the water tap and at the beginning it's dirty and hmm. it's brown and stuff like that. You need to get the the dirty water out and only later does it become clean. I love that, running the water tap. Um, that's very, very good. Yeah, I, I always thought this was a really interesting thing with creativity. I forced constraints are a really good way to stoke creativity too. Mm -hmm. Forcing yourself to try to write it into shorter bite-sized things to cut more and more and more. I've seen people say, you know, when in doubt, just cut. And like, if you have any shred of doubt, just cut the thing, whatever mm -hmm. it is. I always found Twitter to be really helpful for that. I think, I mean, for me, Twitter made me a much, much better writer because of that forced constraint. And even though people say, well, you were writing threads, which allow you to write longer, there's still a lot of constraint in having to close off an idea in a single tweet, not just have it be like run on from one to the next. Um, and that does just force you to do different things. It was, um, Dr. Zeus was like the famous example of this, right? He made the bet with the publisher that he could, you've never heard this story? No. So uh, Dr. Zeus wrote, I'm, and I'm gonna blank on which book it was that he wrote, but he wrote a book using only a hundred different words and it became a massive bestseller. And then he bet his publisher that he could write a book that was a bestseller with under 50 total different words used in the book. And the publisher said, no way. And he wrote Green Eggs and Ham with 49 different words total. And it became, you know, it sold over 10 million copies. It's been this enormous success. And so it's the whole idea that forced constraints actually breed creativity. Sure. He was forced to be creative and to use words in different ways and rhyme things. And um, this amazing, amazing, uh, you know, explosion of innovation and insights that comes from that forced constraint. When you look at your writing, what is the thing that you are the most dissatisfied with? What is the place where you feel, you look at what your work looks like, you're like, ah, I wish that was better. On a regular basis? Yeah. I would say the thing I'm always wrestling with is remaining authentic and keeping the soul in the work. Hmm. And I actually think I do a good job of this, but not an exceptional job of this. If you think about writers on a spectrum from like the growth hackiest, grow on social media at all costs on one end, you know, that's like, here are 10 TED Talks that'll change your life, mm -hmm. a bunch of Chrome extensions that'll change your life, that kind of thing, right. to the most heartfelt, soul-induced writers on the other end. Someone like a Maria Popova, uh, Tim Urban, where like 
you might not hear from them for a while, but when the thing comes, you are damn well reading that because yeah. you know it's going to be incredible. I struggle with where I want to sit on that mm. spectrum. I know it's not on this end of the spectrum, and I know it's not all the way on that end of the spectrum because I think I need to find the balance because my goals are to reach people and impact tons of people. Walk me through the trade-offs of both sides. So on one end of the spectrum, on the growth hacky end of the spectrum, the positive is you can grow really quickly and reach a lot of people. It's a very clear benefit that people have experienced. I think the negatives, there's a long list of negatives. There's no connection with the people that you're interacting with. Mm -hmm. No one knows who you are. No one knows anything about who you are. Uh, no one, I don't think, is going to durably like buy things from you if you're trying to build a business around that. And there's no soul in it. Like I would not be proud to tell my son that that's what I did, mm. right? Like that here's something daddy created. I'm not going to be proud to show him some like here are 10 you know, free university courses <laughs> that'll change your life, whatever, right? Like what, he's going to look at me like I'm crazy. Um, so that's one end of the spectrum. Then the other end of the spectrum, you know, the incredible benefit is like people know your soul. You're exposing your soul on a daily basis. The way you think about the world you know, you're shifting the Overton window around different topics in a real way where you can expand the level of discourse around something. I mean, Tim's, uh, you know, What's Our Problem, his new book, like, it's a tome that is going to be out there forever and could impact the way that people think about the world and how we solve our problems. Most people won't ever read it because it's too big and dense. But the people that do might be the, like, tastemakers of society that do start to shift because they're thinking about the problem differently. That's the positive. The negative is the cadence is impossible to control, so your growth is always going to be constrained because you can't be publishing things on a regular basis with that level of soul involved. It's just mm -hmm. too, you would die, like too draining yeah. creatively to yeah. do that on a daily basis. And so you're trading off the reach, I think, in a lot of cases. Uh, you're trading off the ability to go and impact you know, a billion people with your writing or hundreds of millions of people with your writing. So my perspective has always been that I need to find where my place is on that spectrum and how to maintain a level of authenticity and a level of soul in things that I'm putting out into the world while not giving up what my grand ambition is for the next 50 years of my life, which is to impact positively a billion people in the world. And it sounds like a ridiculous number, but when you talk about over 50 years, it actually isn't that ridiculous. If I was saying I wanted to do that over five years, pretty ridiculous. But I don't believe in doing anything if I'm not going to do it for the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life. Mm -hmm. I've been, as you were talking about those deeper pieces, the word that was coming to mind for me was excavation. And those pieces that have soul you have to excavate reality or yourself. And excavation is a good word for this because you don't always have a plan when you're excavating something. You have a compass, a true north of some sorts. You're always sort of digging down. But surprise is inherent within excavation. Mm -hmm. And you can't really map that out. Like an archaeologist never really knows when they're going to stumble upon ruins. Same with a geologist and oil. But there are tools that an archaeologist or a geologist can use in order to find what they're looking for. It's really a metaphor for life, excavation too, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of you set your true north, you set your compass, and you go exploring. And it's probably the most fun and engaging and fulfilling way to live your life 
it's probably also a risky way to live your life. It's not highly certain that you're going to find gold along the way. Or <laughs> to hell with it. certainty, though. Yeah. To hell well, with certainty. It's easy to say that, I think, yeah. for us. Um, and it goes both ways, right? Like, it's yeah. easy to say, sitting here, you know, having a level of financial comfort, having a level of family comfort, to say, like, to hell with certainty. I would, you know, drop everything to go do this job. And for some people, they, I really don't think they have the luxury of saying to hell with certainty. And so I, like, I often have to ratchet back thing the way I think about the world for that reason. Some people, they need certainty because they need to just provide for whoever it is in their life, mm -hmm. for their family, for their loved ones. It's why I think like when I look at that spectrum of people, I totally understand people on every end of the spectrum and I respect it and I have like tons of respect for anyone that's willing to put themselves out into the world and create content. Mm -hmm. Whether it's on the hacky end or whether it's on the soulful end, Whatever you choose to do, I think the thing is being aware of the game you're playing. Yeah, I mean, I could also take the opposite side where I think that there's something in prosperity that takes away some of that excavation. You know, there's a reason that many of the mm -hmm. poorest countries in the world are the closest to God. There's mm -hmm. a reason that we have the metaphor of the starving artist. When you're starving, when you're hungry, this is why people who are religious, they fast. When you don't have the nutrients inside of you and you almost have to like stretch and yearn, there's something creatively that you can access. Have you heard of um, Thales? Yeah, what Thales of Miletus? Yeah, of course. So yeah. there's this amazing story about Thales story. of Miletus. Uh, that so Thales was for those who don't know sort of the philosopher before Aristotle before all of the great philosophers we know of Thales was this incredible Greek philosopher and it was before philosophy was cool basically so no one respected Thales he was brilliant deep thinker a scientist before there were tons of scientists that had proliferated and he basically walked through life gaining no respect from those around him because in my mind he was speaking a language that other people weren't speaking yet the language was still money and financial success so because he didn't have wealth and he hadn't achieved business business success in any way he did not receive the respect from society and there's this great story of thales uh sort of lamenting the fact that he was not gaining the respect that he believed that he deserved and so he decided to change that and predicted what the next summer's weather would be mm -hmm. on the basis of his scientific calculations. And because he knew that it was going to be a warm, dry summer, he predicted there would be an incredible olive harvest. And he went and bought up all of the olive presses in the entire region. Well, then it was an amazing olive harvest. And he had a monopoly on all of the things that were needed mm -hmm. in order to make something of that and became fabulously wealthy, at which point everyone all of a sudden respected him. And it's such an amazing story to me because on one side it's you need to speak a language that other people understand at a point in time. The other piece of it is there's just a fundamental difference between inputs and outputs for everyone. Mm -hmm. The world is only going to appreciate the outputs mm -hmm. where you might be falling in love with the inputs all along the way. Thales was probably very happy and fulfilled by all of his work, his philosophy, his science. But until he actually generated the outputs that the world understood, there was nothing for him to gain from it societally. Yeah. Well, I look at someone like Peter Thiel, who was coming to mind as you mm -hmm. were saying that. I mean, Peter is looking in such strange places for ideas and he's willing to entertain things that most people are not. And 
look at the eye that that gives him, right? The problem with certainty is that uh, insistence on certainty leads to consensus thinking. And so much of writing is from breaking away from the consensus, mm -hmm. whether that's how you write, whether that's the stories that you tell, whether that's the analogies that you pull from. And the compass of curiosity when it's untethered by social expectations can take you to those places. Yeah, there's a famous saying in investing that applies to Peter Thiel that the goal is for everyone to agree with you later. later. <laughs> um, and it's really true. I, mean, I think the same applies to some of this creative work. I also am of two minds on this. One side of me says, yes, the best writing comes from non-consensus thinking. The other side of me says, there is an amazing world of writing that is taking things that have already been known or said and saying them 10% better. And I, I would argue that if you looked at, within the nonfiction realm, as an example, if you look at like the power loss successes, the, you know, the 0.001% successes, I would guess 95% of those are just an idea or set of ideas that already existed that are put into a slightly more beautiful package and delivered. Habits. Everyone has known for forever that habits are really important. It's great to have good habits. It's bad to have bad habits. There's clear ways to, you know, shift your habits over time. James Clear took that and turned it into a beautiful package, so well written, so concise, into a clear framework and delivered it to people. Yeah. And it changed the world. 10 million plus copies sold. You know, it'll continue to sell in perpetuity. There are very few nonfiction books that I think are, tr like, it's truly a novel, dramatically different. Tim Ferriss, The 4-Hour Workweek, dramatically different. No one had talked about those things mm -hmm. when he came out with that book. I think that's few and far between, though. I think most of the things that come out that really do create a massive, broad, wide-scale impact are just like a slightly better turn on something that people sort of know in the back of their minds. Yeah, I totally feel that. I mean, I always think of many of my favorite teachers. Changed my life. I'm in class with them and the ideas are vibrant. They didn't come up with those ideas. They are taking existing ideas and they're adding life to them. And adding life, I like that. That is what I come back to of, if you look at brain studies of when people are reading ideas that they're already familiar with, when people are reading cliches, the brain just doesn't light up. We become desensitized. It feels rote and routine. And so much of, I think that what you're trying to get at here is that good nonfiction writing can take an existing idea and saturate it with a new flair. And that's what makes it really good. Yeah, so when you say that, as it relates to my own writing and how I think about it, my entire goal is to, if I were to try to distill it into a single sentence, is to help people ask better questions about their own life. Mm -hmm. I have long believed that it is totally impossible for me to give anyone any answers about how to live their life because everyone's map of the world, their reality is so, so different. I can't tell a 70-year-old person how to wrestle, mm -hmm. and, you know, f figure out the answer to whatever it is. And the best things in life don't come 
from finding better answers, they come from asking better questions. Mm -hmm. So if I can help people ask slightly better questions, wrestle with the questions in a slightly new or slightly different way, I think that can create a really dramatic impact. Or it can create a tiny impact that has ripple effects in their life. And so when I think about writing, when I think about any new thing I'm taking on, whether it's book or whether it's a newsletter or different things I'm putting out into the world, I'm always trying to figure out, take something that is known, an idea that's interesting, something that has sparked my curiosity, and then what is my way of wrestling with it? Mm -hmm. Like how has it applied to my life in a unique or interesting way? Mm -hmm. How have I struggled with that problem, whatever the problem is, and how can I help people take the way I've struggled with it and figure out how to struggle with it a little bit better than they were before, right. bring it to the top of their mind a little bit more. That, I think, is where, at least for me, where I find the gold. And when I write something that I come away really energized by, I can't wait for this to be out in the yeah. world, that is what it is about the piece that gets me excited. What does an epiphany feel like for you? When I read, listen to, or meet with someone, and I leave that moment wanting to go sprint and run around and go crazy, that's an epiphany for me. Mm. When I get so much energy all of a sudden, I had a lunch yesterday uh, with a very successful individual who is so passionate about this one pretty weird esoteric thing that I actually wouldn't say was like, the most interesting thing in the world to me going into that lunch. I left literally wanting to go to the ends of the earth, wanting to like understand that more, engage with it more, you know, be a part of it in any way that I could. That to me is an epiphany. Like when you leave so energized that you need to go run on a treadmill to calm yourself down, that's what an epiphany feels like to me. Yeah. What about you? Wait, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> hold on. That's really good, man. The image that came to mind for me was um, the Yellow Brick Road in The Wizard of Oz. Okay. And that essentially what an epiphany is, is realizing that there is a path to some beautiful tower at the end that you hadn't seen before. And you can just run to that promised <laughs> land. Because that is so much of what, for me, is an epiphany. It's like the world begins to sort of feel enclosed and it sort of be begins to lose oxygen. And all of a sudden there's been this infusion of air and I can just race to this promised land. And I get so excited about that. And the way that you describe epiphany is exactly how I feel it. Mm. It is a rush of energy and it flows for me from like my gut up. <laughs> and it is a feeling. It is not my mind. And when I'm writing from my mind, the writing tends to be bland and sterile. When I'm writing from my body and I have that lion-esque rush, hmm. I just want to roar. Hmm. The roar resonates with me. Yeah. Because what I notice post-epiphany is that my running going crazy is I cannot wait to tell like 20 people about that thing, whatever it is. Like I have to call my wife. I have to text some of my friends that I'll constantly text about these things. I have to go share the thing that I was just inspired by because it feels crazy to me for it to be bottled up within me. Like I need to start going and trying to teach the thing to someone else or talk about it with someone else uh, because it feels like an injustice for that excitement to be bottled up. I know in your writing process, you don't have much of a content calendar. You get excited yeah. about something and you get right to it. And I think that it provides 
a lot of validation to an idea that I increasingly agree with, which is that people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. And that you can literally be consumed by an idea. And that idea can inhabit you. And what both of us feel deeply is this need to share, this need to express, this need to teach. And if I can't do that, I just feel dead. I just want to die if I can't have that expression. That idea is living inside of me and it has to get out. It's like my mission. Ideas have people. I feel like that's going to stick with me. I really, really like that. It is the challenge, I think, for most people is they don't give themselves enough time to just sit. Mm. There's that Blaise Pascal, it's like very cliche quote yeah. now that like, you know, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit in a room alone. And it's really true. Bill Gates invented his Think Week yeah. because he needed space for an entire week to just escape and to just think and to read and sit with ideas. And slowing down like that allowed him to identify the things that were going to dramatically mm -hmm. improve the future of what he was building. But we all need a version of that where we can just sit with the things in our life. Whether you're a creative person or not, by the way, whether you consider yourself a writer or a creator, or if you're just trying to get to that step function improvement in your life in whatever area, you need to create the space to just sit mm -hmm. with the idea and to not feel the need to create movement and progress. Mm -hmm. We live in such a movement and progress obsessed society. I am a huge victim of that over the years. I have like had to rewire my brain to be comfortable not making progress on things, not having some ambitious goal around a thing because everything, I wanna be the best at it. I wanna get better at the thing. I wanna hit my time, whatever it is. And it's really uncomfortable for me to just sit like that. But it's the only way that you allow those ideas to take hold. Because if you spark that idea in your gut and you feel it a little bit, and then you go off and do a million other things, and you went and played golf, and you go to church, you, you barrage by all sorts of other stimuli, the idea never really gets to take hold. Have you read George Gilder's work? No. I think he's actually out of Stanford. So George no. Gilder's a sort of esoteric libertarian economist. Okay. And he has a one-liner that I really like, which is that all creativity is surprise. Mm. That all of innovation is surprise. And that the way that you create value is that you create useful surprise. You bring useful surprise into the world. Mm. Because if it wasn't a surprise, it would already be would already be priced in if it wasn't a surprise then it wouldn't be innovation and i think that what you're getting at here is how do you create space and cultivate a life to generate surprise cultivate a life to generate surprise it's like creating i think in systems a lot mm -hmm. and thinking about how you create systems for surprise yeah. is an interesting, it's a, it's a yes. paradox, right? Yeah. It's like a weird Let's run with thing. It. That's really um, good. It's a weird idea. Like how do you create systems in your life that cultivate surprise? Because I often, with my own writing, I think about, okay, what do I do in order to create those moments? Like the inspiration, if I were to distill it, like there's a huge component that's consuming. You need to open the funnel to tons of interesting ideas at the top end in order to get sparked, in order to have those things intermingle in your mind. So what are you reading? What are you listening to? Who are you spending time with? What mm -hmm. conversations are you having? Who are you inspired by? What are the environments you're in? 
And then there's that next layer, which is what we're talking about, which is like that middle layer that everyone overlooks. You think, oh, consume, and now I'm going to write. Mm -hmm. But the middle layer is where the gold is. The middle mm -hmm. layer is the sitting and thinking, or it's the walking and thinking, where you're not listening to an audiobook on 2x speed. You're not listening to a podcast. You're just sitting there and thinking. And that, I think, like the system for creativity for me is that middle layer. It's the just thinking, allowing ideas to connect and bounce around in your mind, bouncing those ideas off someone to see where did it connect with them, mm -hmm. where did it miss the mark, how did they react to it, like the Feynman technique side mm -hmm. of it where you're sort of teaching the idea yes. to a five-year-old, quote-unquote. That is that like beautiful, sludgy, yucky middle layer of creativity. That's the real key to the whole system, if you will. And surrounding yourself with people who... Oof ask good questions and open up new landscapes of consciousness. That's the entire game. I mean, my if I have one goal in life, I don't care much about money. Paradoxically, I've made much more money when I stopped caring about money, mm. um, which is, a, I think, probably a common thread among really um, successful people. But I really care about my currency of life, if you will, is the interesting people I feel like I can collect in my life and connect with each other and spend time around because I feel more energy having an amazing conversation with someone I think is really smart one-on-one -on -one, or being in a room where there's five people having this amazing conversation that I get to be a fly on the wall for than almost anything else in my life in a professional-ish setting. There's, um, you know, like the Medici family uh, started funding the, the arts mm -hmm. and designers and artists and architects in 15th, in 15th century Florence. And all of them flocked to Florence at one point in time in history mm -hmm. because the Medicis were the first people that were actually funding their work. All of a sudden, you have this unbelievably lively discourse in one place at one point in time. And what happens? The Renaissance mm -hmm. gets sparked. You have to find in your own life how to get yourself into that little mini 15th century Florence. Amen. Like, what is that for your life? For a lot of people, their college campus is the first time they feel that. Like they're in an environment with big thinkers and people that they're around. And then they leave, and they never experience 15th century Florence again their entire life. Mm -hmm. And my opinion is that all goes to that Benjamin Franklin quote. Like, a lot of people die at 25, and we don't mm -hmm. bury them until they're 80. If you lose that, if you lose an environment where you are pushed, where there are people forcing you to think bigger, where there are people that are questioning your assumptions, causing you to think differently about problems, talking about interesting problems that you get to listen to, if you lose that, what's the point? Mm -hmm. I think that we're hitting at two things here. The first is people who show you avenues for exploration that you had never seen before and then the second is that sense of curiosity paired with a kind of radical honesty i was with a friend a few days ago and i was just blabbing through something and he just looks at me and goes cut shit out of your life i get that someone else does this but that's not you cut it out what does your life look like if you just cut shit out and you just live in a way that's aligned with your nature what does that look like and that interaction maybe took eight seconds honesty paired with the new space for ex for exploration and all of a sudden i feel like like i have white space where i was previously stuck it's so funny how 
he probably hasn't thought about that inter that interaction since he had it. Yeah. And he left you with one idea that took five seconds, and the impact might have twenty years of value on mm -hmm. your life. That one thing that he said, and I think about that constantly with my writing or things that I put out into the world. That one tiny thing you say, the way you say it, can change someone's entire course of their life without mm -hmm. you knowing it. You know what I've noticed that I find to be very strange is the sentences that I've written that seem to really impact people are not the ones mm. that I thought were the most eloquent. They weren't the ones that I wrote and was like, oh, wow, that's a great sentence. Often they're just really mundane things that have come out that then get repeated back to me many months later. I'm like, that was the sentence? And there's a few things there. The first is often the pursuit of, elo of eloquence. It's worthy to a point, but I think that a lot of us are trained as writers to try to sound like novelists, and it's often not worth pursuing. But also that there isn't a huge correlation sometimes between how hard you work on something and how well it ends up doing from a sentence to a piece. A lot of people obsess over sounding smart to the smartest people in the room. Mm -hmm. And I understand it, but it's a blinding pursuit. Yeah. And when you do that, when you're focused on that, you have to understand there's trade-offs to everything. And if you're trying to sound smart to the smartest people in the room, there's going to be a whole lot of people who you are not able to connect with because of the way that you're pursuing things. Mm -hmm. I have never wanted to sound like the smartest person to the smartest people in the room. If those people enjoy the things I'm putting out into the world, I want it to be because they can feel that it's real. Mm -hmm. They can feel that it's authentic. And I think that I've done an okay job of that. I think I can always get better and continue to improve on that. But I don't want to impress the smartest people in the room by just sounding so eloquent like an amazing novelist mm -hmm. and sharing things. I want to be able to impact a regular person that is living their life to be able to live slightly better because of something that they read. Mm -hmm. And that comes with speaking in simple terms that mm -hmm. anyone can engage with and anyone can take in any direction. That's not talking down to people. That's not, you know, it's distilling something. It's forcing the constraint to use simple language when you share something. I saw Morgan Housel on your show recently and he's talking about that. He's one of the best in the world at that. Mm -hmm. He create, he took a set of ideas and breathed life into them by making them so accessible to anyone in the world. And smart people think he's amazing and normal people think he's amazing. <laughs> it's because of how much soul that he was able to bring to the stuff that he was putting out. I've always really admired that. In, you know, in his writing, I think James Clear has done an incredible job with that. I think um, Tim Ferriss is like one of the OGs doing that. And that is a remarkable skill, by the way. It's very, very difficult to do that and to hone that as a skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that as a writer, you need to have a brutal honesty with yourself. When am I using a big word to posture? And when am I using a big word because it's accurate and it's adding <laughs> life to what I'm writing? And it's really easy yeah. to deceive yourself there. This makes me think of status. So my whole, uh, like my razor for status, if you will, like how I cut through the noise on this is, would you do this thing or would you buy this thing if you couldn't tell anyone in the world about it? That's good. And if the answer is no, 
it's just a BS status game that you're playing. That doesn't mean you shouldn't still do it. Maybe <laughs> you want to flex on the nice watch or you want to flex on the car or the private jet or whatever the thing is. But just know that you're doing it for the flex. You're doing it for the status. You're not doing it for the utility. The same exact rule applies to writing. Are you writing that word because you want other people to be like, wow, David, you're so smart? Or are you writing that word because it adds incremental utility to the sentence that you're putting out? Well, also sometimes what you think is going to impress other people doesn't impress other people. The funny thing is now anti-status stuff is a status play, like where you know, billionaires or like multimillionaires love to flex on the fact that they drive a shitty car. Right. Like you'll see super rich people be like, yeah, I still drive my, you know, I still drive it's my like Toyota Bezos Camry. Bezos and the Honda. Yeah, the I still drive this. I still, you know, like the whole thing with Warren Buffett, the whole shtick of like he still lives in his Omaha house. Don't worry about the 30, you know, multi-million dollar mansions he has all around the world or the fleet of jets. Uh, he's still got this car and eats at McDonald's. So it sort of becomes like, it's it's almost like you know the the inverse starts to become true too. Yeah. But it is. What game are you playing with the writing that you're putting out into the world? Who are you trying to connect with? Who are you trying to impact? And are you trying to sound smart, or are you trying to create value for people? Every piece of writing is a call for the kind of person that you want to bring into your life. That's how I think about it. Is what kinds of people do I want to attract? What is the writing that I need to attract those people? And there's something about numbers on the internet that make people feel like they're all the same because you're looking at views, you're looking at followers, you're looking at likes. But once you meet who your readers are in person, you realize that they're just a reflection of what you're putting out there. I've always found it helpful to create things that I would actually want to consume. And I consider myself reasonably smart, at least on paper. Uh, but I don't want to consume complicated sounding things that are super dense and super long. I want to consume things that get to the freaking point yeah. and get to it and then leave. Mm -hmm. I like labor the point. I mean, my biggest lamentation about nonfiction as a category of books is that it is entirely filled by books that you get the point in 15 pages and then there's 185 pages of filler behind mm -hmm. it. And now having gone through a book process and selling a book to publishers, I understand why. Because they want you to write the most narrow version of the topic that you want to write about. Like when I was going and talking about my book, it's like, oh, well, why don't you just pick one, you know, I wanted to have these five sections. Like, why don't you just pick one of those and just do that one thing? And my whole point to them was, that's not going to, that basically is going to be my exact thing that I hate about the book industry. It's going to become a book where you could have gotten the point in 10 pages, but now I'm giving it to you in 200. Good luck. Mm -hmm. Go have fun with it. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend two years of my life working on something that, you know, 85% of people aren't going to read or aren't going to enjoy or get value from. And so that, like, I just, I, I often think that when I'm putting something out before I hit send, would I want to read this? Would yeah. I get value from this? Yeah. When I look at your email list growth, there was a huge uptick, an inflection point in October 2022. What happened? So there are two inflection points. The first inflection point was when I met you. So I'm going to give you, I'll, I'll give you your flowers here. I had never thought of email as something that mattered. I didn't understand what the creator economy was. Let's just be totally honest around it. I was working in finance. I thought that was the only way in the world to make money. I thought that would be my entire life. I started writing on Twitter because I had a bunch of time on my hands. I was stuck at home. I had no life. It was during COVID. 
And that started to create traction. There was something there. I loved it. I got tons of energy out of it, so I kept doing it. But there was never a plan to like leave. I didn't have some grand strategy. I didn't have like, here's my approach to growing my Twitter empire. It was just, I enjoyed it. I was putting it out. I started the email because people wanted to just see my Twitter threads in their inbox rather yeah. than reading it on Twitter. Our first call, you encouraged me to start taking email seriously and the value of creating that connection and that level of depth. So that was uh, like May of 2021 when I started taking it seriously and I started sending like on a real cadence, sending things out. That was the first inflection point. The second inflection point was closer to the end of 2022, as you said, um, when I hired a team on the back end. So up until that point, I'd grown it to about 130, 140,000 maybe subscribers, which was fantastic, but I was doing everything. I was doing all of the writing, obviously, because that's what I enjoy most, but then I was also doing all the business side of it, like my you know, sponsor slots and uh, you know, any like, collaboration posts with people and any, uh, you know, promotional swaps with other writers that were in my similar domain, all of that stuff I was doing. And it was just an enormous cognitive load that was mm -hmm. taking my mind away from the most important right. thing, which was the creative work that I really enjoyed. It was like I was spending probably 80% of my time on things that I hated and 20% on the thing that I loved. And I hired a team to actually go handle all of the like operations side of what the newsletter was. So who's on that team? What are the roles? How yeah. did you define that? The biggest thing was like I needed a, call it a chief of staff effectively, um, who could oversee all of the operations. I had worked with my, the guy that had done my website for me, um, I knew really well because I'd worked with him for a year. Is this Shane? Shane, yeah. And... We started talking, started um, explaining to him some of the headaches and some of the pain points with it. I had become really close with Nathan Berry, the founder at ConvertKit. We were talking about a bunch of this stuff. And so then I told Shane, like, why don't I start paying you to manage all of this backend stuff to help me create, you know, basically like newsletter growth as a service effectively, mm -hmm. like all the backend stuff that I'm doing to try to manage and grow the newsletter. And what are the different parts of that? Like, how would you map that out? Yeah. So basic, like blocking and tackling of we, we manually uh, turn newsletters into a website version, both for SEO and for it to exist in perpetuity somewhere in a beautiful way, not mm -hmm. just in a, you know, automatic landing page way, all of the growth stuff. So that would be if we run any ads for the newsletter, that would be like swaps and collaboration posts, uh, you know, anything now with all the ConvertKit tools around Sparkloop or the creator network, lead magnets. Like if you're going to put things out into the world, like Tim Ferriss was one of the first to do this. He did it with like his favorite books, mm -hmm. some of those things that drive email subs in order to get mm -hmm. access to some new insight from him things like that, that I just wasn't going to have time to do or do well, basically. I would do them pretty poorly and I would be doing a bunch of things poorly. But a lot of it was like, let's test and learn. Start doing some of these things. And let's see where it takes us. So I hired Shane to start doing that. And by January of 2023, we had just driven a dramatic inflection point in the growth, you know, from probably growing at but I don't know, five to 10,000 a month to 50,000 a month, like a true 10x. Do you know what accounted for most of the difference? The lead magnets was a big jump. Um, having a system around who we did uh, collaborations and swaps with, some of the tools that we implemented. So with Sparkloop that was rolling out that now ConvertKit has acquired at the time it was still independent. 
starting to run paid ads and test what kind of CPA we could get around them and see whether we could self-fund that with the ad revenue that was coming in to make it just like a net break-even thing. Nice. Basically just creating like an infinite loop where all of the money coming in from sponsors was entirely reinvested. I was in a fortunate position that none of the media or platform stuff I do is how I make money. So I don't do brand deals. Like you don't see me, uh, you know, taking every brand deal that comes my way. Like I don't sell courses, do those kind of things. And I have a bunch of businesses that make money. And so the newsletter, I just said, I'm going to run this at break even. I want to reinvest every dollar that comes in from ad revenue into growing it. So let's figure out how to do that. Shane, here's the mandate. Figure out how we can grow the newsletter in a quality way. I don't want to, you know, go and acquire a bunch of fake bot subscribers. Like let's assess, learn, figure out who's good, what we can pay for them, uh, et cetera. So Shane started doing that. We generated a lot of success. And by January, I went to Nathan and I said, you guys should have this at ConvertKit. Like, this should be a service at ConvertKit. And his response was, services isn't really what they want to get into. Mm -hmm. so ConvertKit is a software company. That's what matters for growing the business and for uh, valuation of the business if they exit. But that he was really interested in doing something like that. So we actually decided to productize what Shane had done for me. And we created and launched a business called Paperboy that does this for other people now. Um, so took all of the learnings from what he had done for me and created a product around it that now it's like newsletter ops and growth as a service that gets offered. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like the principles of writing are about as timeless as it gets. And I think the principles of distribution are about as timely as it gets. Yeah. So what do you do as a creator to stay on the cutting edge of distribution? And how do you think about that? Uh, is it talking to other people? And how has it changed over time as well? Yeah, I'm constantly trying to learn best practices from other people. What's working for them? What's not working for them? And that applies across all mediums, by the way. Like newsletters, one. And it's probably my biggest focus. It's what I get most excited about. So I want to know, like, I went deep on what did Morning Brew do with their referral program? How did they drive so much growth with a referral program in the early days, which is free, effectively? Like, you mm -hmm. know, there are shirts and mugs and stuff, but pretty free. What are the best practices around paid ads? Because you can spend a lot of money and generate a bunch of crappy subs if you do that wrong. You know, what, what's working around lead magnets? Like, what does a quality lead magnet look like that people aren't just going to feel like you know, they just got ripped off. Like they're actually going to start engaging with the newsletter. Because at the end of the day, what you're actually trying to do with all of this stuff is generate a quality connection with some new person. And whether you pay $2 for that person or whether it's free through a lead magnet, whatever, what you actually care about is the like adjusted CPA, yep. which is adjusted for how much they engage. Mm -hmm. If I get a $1.50 CPA on someone, but they never open my email, right. that's infinite. Like, <laughs> I, shouldn't have paid a, I shouldn't have paid anything mm -hmm. for that. And so I think a lot about adjusted where, um, you know, I know there's going to be channels that are lower engagement levels and I need to be very quick about pruning those subs from the list. I need to be very quick about testing if they're real and good. And all of that is learned just by testing and iterating really, really quickly, by connecting with other creators, having conversations with them, what's working, what's not, and figuring out what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do. I'm not willing to write the really cringe, uh, you know, TED Talks thing or whatever it is, even if I know that that's going to drive 5,000 email subs, I won't do it. So it's also kind of like finding within the constraints of the type of content you're willing to create. How has Twitter changed since you started? Dramatically. Yeah, no kidding. Um, when you think about the trajectory of any market, 
I think Twitter has followed the exact same thing, which is something appears that is a massive arbitrage and opportunity, and the market exploits that opportunity until it no longer exists. And when I started writing on Twitter, which was May of 2020, May 12th, 2020 was my first post, uh, 500 followers out there at the time, which is funny to think today. <laughs> no one had really started writing in the thread format. It wasn't enabled even as a feature. You had to comment under your own post. There was no like add tweet or create a thread where you could post it at once. I started doing that because I was interested in exploring ideas in a depth that went beyond, at the time, 140 characters. And it seemed like a good way to do that. My second insight, which happened very quickly, was from reading Ben Thompson, who I don't know if you've had on here, but eventually I'm sure will, who has this incredible model with his newsletter blog where he's embedding and like networking ideas unbelievably well. David Senra does it with the Founders Podcast where he's pulling in, oh yeah, I talked about this on episode blah, 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 and here's how it connects. I figured there was an opportunity to do that with Twitter where mm. no one had done that, where I could build on ideas that I'd written about previously by casing them back into a new idea that I was sharing and basically create a Twitter native blog. And I started doing that and experienced rapid dramatic success without sacrificing my values around what the quality should be. I did, I never, I mean, I still feel really proud of this. Like I never did the, uh, the like true growth hacky stuff. I, there were things I did that were more growth focused, but I never did like whatever the trend of the day was around mm -hmm. a post. But that was the real insight for me was just uh, how can I tie together ideas uh, in like a meta thread, basically, where you're connecting to something you had written previously and bringing them together to create a really beautiful, consumable piece of content on a platform that was known for the little bite-sized things. I started doing that. I was probably one of the first. Grew really quickly. All of a sudden, the market starts to pick up on an arbitrage, right? So more people started writing threads. More people started picking up on it. Come into 2021, threads become like the meme where every, you know, everyone and their mother is writing threads. Most of them, unfortunately, um, are bad. Because in any market, most of the stuff that is going to come out right. is bad. For me, it was great. Because if you're still spending time and you have unique insights and it's different, you can always still stand out within a market. But for a lot of people, it became harder to grow from the thing. The market opportunity started getting squeezed and squeezed out. Fast forward to then Elon Musk takes over. A lot has changed since then. Personally, I think for the better, I'm really excited about all of the new features that are rolling out, the focus on video, how quickly they're shipping new features and changes. I think it's a much more challenging time if you're starting out to grow quickly. And I think that's a good thing. And the mm -hmm. reason I think it's a good thing is I think focus on vanity metrics dilutes the quality of what you're doing. You are much, much better off having 10,000 people that are truly connected with you because you've created really high value stuff over a year than by reaching 100,000 people by posting about TED Talks. Mm -hmm. So Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans is like the Bible of this, right? It's really, really true. And yet we all still fall victim to this vanity metric mindset. Mm -hmm. So what I've been encouraging anyone that's getting started now with Twitter or, that's, or that had experienced the rapid growth and is now so frustrated right. is you just need to completely shift your mindset. If you're talking about a thousand true fans, why is it your goal to hit a billion people? How do you square those two things? That's a good question. 
what I want to do is maximum reach that number of people, but create a depth of connection with a, as high of a possible percentage of them as possible. I told you before we came on, my number one initiative for 2024 is to do in-person live events where I can create those 15th century Florence mm -hmm. rooms for as many people as possible. I am a big believer that I have benefited dramatically from being in those rooms and having access to those rooms over the entirety of my life. Most people never have access to those rooms. And I think I'm in a position where I can go and create them. So I want to go out into the world and reach as many people as I can with my content and then pull as many people of those as I can into those rooms so that they can benefit from being around these you know, these others, and like big thinkers, ambitious people. Because I've seen the benefit that that creates in your life, and I know that I can be a part of that slight uptick, that slight inflection point in other people's lives. One of the strange things about creating content is that often people read things that you've written that you now disagree with, and they'll hold you to those things. Mm. I was talking to a friend of mine. She's a Hollywood actress named Jennifer Morrison, mm. and she was... Uh, she was in house and uh she was what emma swan played that character and she was one time walking in new york and someone came up to her and like jumped on her mm -hmm. and was like i love this character that you played like 10 years ago and she's like that was me 10 years ago like i'm so different from now and i think that there's this weird way that time shows up when you're writing and when you're sharing your ideas because you're like a river you're in a state of constant flux constant change constant seasons but there's something that is set in stone about writing and i find the juxtaposition between those two things to be a little spooky actually do you have any idea how long and this is actually a genuine question do you have any idea how long it took to paint the sistine chapel way too long. I don't know. The reason I ask is because I encountered this exact thing with writing my book. You know, it took a year, say, to put together like a, dra a first draft that I'm reasonably happy with. And at the end of that year, when I was going through and editing some of the stuff and trimming things down, I read things that I had written nine months ago at the very outset that I was like disgusted by the quality of cringed at like oh my god like who is that that yeah. wrote that thing from so long ago and with writing it's kind of funny right you like click delete you change it you make you know you rewrite it whatever but imagine painting something that takes five years to go paint and i think uh i think he didn't allow people to come in and look at it during the process because he didn't want any of any outside perspectives but I imagine when you're creating some massive masterpiece, you're going to go back to things you created at the very beginning of it, and you are a totally different person. You have different perspectives on the world, different vision for it than what you created at the beginning. Mm -hmm. No matter what, you have yep. changed fundamentally. Yep. Yep. From whatever you know, systems, whatever things have come into your life, whatever challenges, struggles, devastation, whatever, um, you are fundamentally different. And it's a sad thing that we live in a world where we call people who change their mind in the face of new information flip-floppers. Mm -hmm. It's a negative term. Politicians who change their mind on something are flip-floppers. When in reality, the ability to change your mind when faced with new evidence or information is a sign of intelligence. That's first-rate intelligence. There's a mm -hmm. quote on that. But we say that those people are bad. You're supposed to just have the same opinion for your whole life, I think, in order to be a good politician, which is ludicrous. Yeah. 
Well, I think that this is one thing that is really good about the time and the energy and the dedication that it takes to write a book is that a book is what persists after all the day-to-day -day turmoil has been sort of scruffed away and you just look at, at my core, what do I believe? I think that that's what a book is. I think that's when you're ready to publish a book. One of the biggest challenges I have faced is the transition from being primarily like social media newsletter to book. A lot of these writers, they wrote the book and then, you know, became a big figure and continued. Some of them, I guess, were like massive bloggers and so they've probably encountered this, but I'm not sure if they talked about it, so I'll frame it for you. The dopamine cycle mm -hmm. is the biggest challenge to going and writing a book mm -hmm. that I've encountered. Every single other piece of content I've ever created in my whole life had at most a like two-day dopamine cycle, meaning from the time I created it and thought about it to the time I got a feedback, a hit of dopamine, whether it's in the form of likes or retweets or whether it's in the form of responses to the email, at most like two days. And then take a book and it's two years. Yeah. It's literally two. I, I am not going to get a single piece of like real live feedback on sales, on, you know, how people are talking about it, reviews, whatever, for two years. And so the motivation on a daily basis to go and really crawl through the mud to create the thing is so challenging. And no one prepares you for it. You don't think about that, that that is going to be the biggest challenge you face, is that you are in the dark for so much longer than you ever have been in other endeavors within the creative realm. Yeah. How have you thought about structuring time and a schedule in order for you to make the incremental progress there then? I was terrible about it for the first nine months of the one year. So I signed the book deal September 30th, 2022. Uh, I had in the original contract at least until September 30th, 2023. Has so, an author ever hit their no, original and I deadline? Didn't, I didn't. <laughs> and I didn't. Uh, uh, no, and, and that... That's a bad thing, by the way, because I knew that because every author friend I'd talked to, I'd talked to James Clear, I'd talked to, you know, Mark Manson, Tim Ferriss, like all these guys that I really admire, I'd asked, you know, and they all said like, oh yeah, it took me three years to write the first thing. Or Susan Cain I talked to and she was like, I write one book a decade, like if I'm lucky, I'll get it done in 10 years. So then in your mind, you're like, oh, this deadline's a joke. Uh, mm -hmm. So you don't take it seriously. <laughs> Just at the outset, like you're not taking it seriously. And so what happened to me was I basically spent nine months and I had written, I don't know, 5,000 words on the book, which had to be 75,000 full manuscript. Uh, and then July 1st came around and I basically was like, oh, I'm kind of, I'm the type of person that hits deadlines. Like I think of that identifies someone that I don't miss deadlines, at least not without a full effort towards it. If I miss the deadline, I want to have like really given it my all yeah. and then I miss it. And so starting July 1st, I decided that the way I was going to do it was that I was going to, without fail, non-negotiable, have two hours a day, first thing in the morning, which is when my most creative moments are, to write. And I did that every single day from July 1st until September 30th and I got it done. Um, wow. And I needed that. Like I just needed to create the structure and create the time pressure. And you hear authors talk about this all the time. I'm, I had lunch with Mark Manson recently, and he talks about this. Like, you know, he had written 10,000 words, and then in the last month he wrote, you know, he went to like a cabin in the woods or something and mm -hmm. wrote 100,000 words. Or uh, Matthew McConaughey talks about this with green lights. He mm -hmm. did the exact same thing. So it, it's Parkinson's law for sure. Like the work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. 
Uh, I also, again, come back to what we said at the very beginning, that the constraint breeds creativity. Once you're constrained and you know you have this window and you know you have to really push hard, all of a sudden things just start flowing. How will you know if the book is good enough to publish? And... I'm terrified about this yeah. because I don't consider myself an author. What I mean is my, my future vision for my life is not an author. Um, I don't know if I will ever write another book as long as I live. I try not to plan too far in advance in general in life. I didn't seek out to write a book. This book was the idea that consumed me. And I, I, all of a sudden, I needed to create it. I had been getting approached by publishers for 18 months prior to having this idea to write this book. And I had just said, nope, 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 don't have anything. They were coming to me with ideas. Hey, you should write about whatever viral Twitter thread I had written. You should expand that into a book. It would be a great book. You could sell X copies. Sure, I probably could, but I don't want to write it. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't care enough about the thing or whatever. It's not consuming me. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I need to go sprint down that path, Amen. the yellow brick road, to get to the, to get to the castle. And then I had this one and I felt that. And so what that means for me is that I don't know if th this might be the only book I write in my entire life. And that creates such a high bar in my mind for what I want it to be. Mm -hmm. And that's terrifying to me because it also means that I'm creating unbelievably unrealistic and high expectations for what I assume it is going to do in the world. And that's what I'm most scared of. I'm most scared of putting something out into the world that doesn't actually impact people in the way that I want it to. And I don't know that there's a way to get around that. Where I've come to on it is there's two sides to it. One is if this goes really poorly and no one buys it, no one's really impacted by it, I want to have loved writing it, mm. truly loved writing it and being involved in it because I will have spent two years of my life or three years of my life on something that is terrible and doesn't impact anyone. If it is fantastic and it changes the world and sells 10 million copies, I'm going to have to talk about this book for the rest of my freaking life. <laughs> so again, I better have damn loved the topic because I'm going to have to talk about it for the rest of my life. And so in both cases, what that distills down to is feeling that connection with the idea and feeling that true guttural yeah. explosion of what it is inside you. I had a conversation with a very dear friend and at the time I was just really struggling creatively. And I was like, I wanna be a creative lion. I wanna publish all the time and write great stuff. And he's like, hold on there, cowboy. <laughs> when you did feel that, what was going through your head? What was inspiring you to write? And I sort of just lightened up and I was like, you know, this is what it was. I'd get really interested in an idea and then I'd try to figure out that idea for myself and then I'd just go share it with other people. And I'd just do that again and again and again and again with no regard for how successful that idea was going to be. And it was like in a hundred pound vest just lifted off my shoulders and I was liberated to just go run and create. And I always think of that conversation because... How much of writer's block comes down to a deep fear of expectations and being imprisoned by your own vision of how successful something needs to be that you can't actually let the sludge come out of you that then you fix later on because you're starting with expectations.
It's 100% true. And in my own experience, it applies across everything. It applies to the broader, longer creative works like books. It also applies to how you think about social media and posting. And the obsession with the metrics on how a post does, it's inversely correlated to the soul that is in that work. If you are constantly thinking about the number of likes that a post is gonna get, you're not gonna create the things that you wanna create. You just won't. And I have, I have wrestled with that a ton to the point where now I do not look at the engagement on a post until 24 hours later. Is that right? That was the change I made in my life. And it has dramatically improved my happiness wow. and the quality of the things I'm putting out into the world. I will not look. I will comment under things, I'll reply to people's comments, and I'll like glaze my eyes over so that I can't see the performance of a post. Same thing with newsletters, I don't look at open rates until a week later. Because I don't want, I don't want to feel dissatisfied with something that I loved writing because the open rate is 5% lower than I think it should be at a point in time. I don't want that to go impact my day, I don't want it to impact the next piece that I write. I want it to be pure and I want to be driven by the right thing. And that has really changed how I've thought about creating. I want to create things, again, that I want to consume. I want to create around real experiences that I'm having. Yeah. And if there's, there's probably, you know, I have a million followers on Twitter. If I go and have an interesting conversation with someone super random, interesting, crazy, I learned a few interesting things, and I post about that, there's probably not a million people that want to engage with that. There's a million people that will want to engage with some random, you know, uh, platitude that I could put out, you know, and say like, you know, making money, like, you know, get smarter, make money, whatever, like yeah. probably get a million likes on something yeah. like that. But I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that my whole life and spend time. I can't do that for the next 30 years of my life. It sounds boring. It sounds mm -hmm. miserable. So separating, like truly creating space between yourself and what you think the like output focus is supposed to be is really important. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I need to do that with the book. And it's going to be really, really hard. What's your editing process like generally? On anything? Mm -hmm. um, very, very light usually what on are you most things for? that I create. Um, what matters to you? The shortest possible version of how I could say something. The shortest. Yeah. And I shouldn't, I mean, you know, it's like the most concise version of how I could, uh, how I could get an idea across. If there's like extra words and extra commas and, you know, all of the, you know, any like, uh, Anything that's adding fluff to something that could have been distilled further, um, I try to strip out. It's the reason that for the longest time, I wrote things first on Twitter and then expanded on them elsewhere because that forces you to have the most distilled version of the idea. Then you can expand on it and it's going to be much better. Um, when I get away from that, the writing is worse. Like yeah. when I write it in the long form and then I try to distill it it's worse yeah we have an idea in write a passage called the shiny dime you got to find your shiny dime and it's just always a, a a reminder to just find that shiny essence that the smallest thing that you're trying to say because when you know what that main point is everything else orbit orbits mm. around it. it's like a chorus in a mm -hmm. song right every verse points back to the chorus and until you have that clarity i think it's hard to write really well now sometimes that shiny dime comes to you before you start writing, where you have a nice one-liner, you have a nice phrase, you have a nice sentence, where you're like, that is the essence of what I'm trying to say. But I find more often than not, it's actually the opposite. Mm. I throw a bunch of sludge onto the page, and it's only in the process of removing, of trying to find the needle in the haystack, so to speak, that then later 
I stumble upon what that thing is. And often it takes me years. I have had that exact same experience. You have to crawl through the mud in order to find the shiny dime. I had this one line. Um, I write a lot about this idea of finding enough in your life. Yeah. The definition is of enough. And I crawled through the mud on a piece about this for several weeks. And then one morning I woke up with this thing in my mind of never let the quest for more distract you from the beauty of enough. And I was like, oh my God, like it synthesized the entire piece into this one sentence for me. And now I, I say it like there's a lot of people that have, you know, taken it and it's turned into a thing. Um, but it took weeks for me to all of a sudden have this one moment where it was like, oh, more and enough and the juxtaposition of these ideas. You and I are very clicked. similar. The way that we talk about ideas, you just did it sort of at a shake when you yeah. talked about finding that sentence. <laughs> like the truth lies in the body. Yeah. And it's like, for both you and I, the body knows and then the head almost receives what yeah. the body already knows. And I've noticed that multiple times. Yeah. Maybe it's an athletics thing. It might be. Have you heard of the centipedes dilemma? I have no idea what that okay. is. It's, it's exactly this. It's a great name. So the centipedes dilemma is there's a story of a, a centipede and a rabbit walks up to the centipede and says, hey, which one of your legs is the fastest? And the centipede starts thinking about, oh, which leg is the fastest and is completely unable to walk anymore because they're thinking about which leg is the fastest. And previously, it was this intuitive motion of just like everything flowing together. And the second they like threw a kink into it of trying to think about it, it shuts their entire thing down. I've believed that to be true in almost anything that I've pursued in life. As soon as you start making something a thoughtful process rather than allowing it to flow you lose all ability to like coordinate the beauty around it. And so with writing, it's the reason, by the way, that I avoid a lot of technology as it comes to writing. I, I'm probably on the crazy end of the spectrum, but look, I carry around a, a notebook. This is how I track all my ideas. I don't have Notion. I don't like do note taking on Notion or Rome or any of these fancy networked note taking. It's literally on a dot piece of paper moleskin pocket notebook. I don't use, uh, you know, any like chat GPT AI tools to research things. Like when I'm researching, it's very analog and I'm going and looking at things. When I edit stuff, I print it out on paper and I sit there with a pen and edit it by hand because I have to see it on paper in order to actually like register the words. I can't see it on a screen. So everything I do is like, I'm trying to maintain a level of almost like childishness around it rather than making it feel like this big technological, uh, you know, thoughtful process. Nice. Will you walk me through one of the pages on that? Mm. I want to get a sense for the messiness, the sense of the play. Yeah. Like, what are you actually writing down? Are they fragments? Are they words? Are they complete ideas? Are they images? So here's like, I, you're not going to be able to zoom in enough. I use a dot. Um, it's a dot plot. So like a grid. I don't like lines. Yeah. Again, lines like keep you writing within lines. On dot plots, I can kind of be like all over the place with stuff. And I'm a terrible artist, so I don't try to draw things. But here's an example. Like on one day I wrote current tensions. And this is just like randomly during the day. Yeah. I think I was out on a walk and I stopped <laughs> and wrote this down. Um, planning out. I need, uh, yeah. It just says planning out week ahead on weekly call. I actually now, even thinking back on this, no idea what that was talking about. Like I just had that thought, wrote it into my mind. More barriers to my time. And so for that one, it was mm -hmm. like too many people have too much access to my time that I'm allowing to just drain my time in different ways, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. And then I wrote down action points. 
Like, what am I going to do about these different things? There's an interview with Kendrick Lamar where he's talking about his writing process. And this is what he does. He carries around a little notebook and it's one word here, three words there, five words there. And for him, it's a little different. What he says he's trying to write is an observation just enough that he can go back and find the emotion that he had when he was writing, Mm. when he wrote that down. And the way that memory works, this is an intuitive, like I got no science behind this, but I almost think of memory as hiding inside of doors and it's very dependent on context and the environment. So once you open one door, it's like other memories are sort of locked behind Mm. that. And the reason I feel this way is you ever go back to your childhood home or you go back to your high school, you go back to your middle school and all of a sudden mm-hmm. all those memories get unlocked. But like those memories are almost hiding behind the door of that place. I have a very weird memory. Um, I've never thought of myself as having a good memory. And then recently I've had a bunch of friends say to me like, dude, you have a crazy memory on mm-hmm. these things. It's because I write stuff down. Yeah. And when I write something down once, like an idea. Yeah. I remember it basically forever. Me too. And like even so from this conversation, I have this one page of things that I've written down since we sat down and I wrote down excavation in quotes because you talked about excavation. I was like, oh, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I wrote down poor equals soul from when you were talking about like the starving artist thing. So it's funny, like all of these, these tiny little seeds that I'll then I'll write it down. And then what I try to do is my rule with when I'm writing things down, like a new idea that I write down that I've... Um, that I've researched or that I've read something about, I write it down. My rule is that within 24 hours, I need to act on that note. And what I mean by act on is I need to talk about it with someone. I need to go have a conversation, try to explain it to someone, ask them a question about how it connected with them, whether I was missing something, like see how they Mm -hmm. uh, interact with the idea. And then I remember it forever. Like that Thales of Miletus thing, Thales of Miletus. um, I read that like, I don't know, two days ago or something on the plane flight. And I wrote it down and then I, on a phone call with my wife, brought it up and I kind of immediately get to see, okay, what parts of this story are connecting with someone? What parts are missing? How, like, how was I distilling the gist of it well or not well? One of the things I pride myself on that I try to do in writing as well as in any interactions on podcasts, whatever, is bringing the essence of an idea very quickly and concisely to somebody, Mm -hmm. something that might have taken a long time to bring across, like a long article, whatever. Can you bring it in like two sentences or three sentences? And that only comes from doing this. Like Write it down, try to distill it to someone, see where it took you a long time, see where you didn't make sense or where they were like looking confused, and then go from there. You remember it forever. Yeah, I call this writing from conversation, Hmm. where what you're doing is you're talking to people and you're getting a sense for what's landing, what's not landing, what are the questions that people are asking, And then over time, you can just see it in somebody's Mm. eyes when that idea is ready to hit publish. I remember there was a piece that I wrote many years ago called What the Hell is Going On? And I was working through the thesis. And I was like, I'm only going to publish this piece when I talk to like five people in a row whose eyes open up super wide as I explain it to them. And I remember I was at dinner with my friend Drew Austin on the East Village in New York City writes a newsletter newsletter called Kneeling Bus. And I remember his reaction. I was like, it's ready to ship. I've been working on it for months and I just watched his reaction. It was like my fifth mm-hmm. one in a row. I was like, it's ready to go. 
It's so funny because my dad, so my dad is a professor and I asked him what he enjoyed most about it. And what he said was he enjoys the look in someone's eyes when they understand the thing that he is presenting to them. Like that look where he can feel the aha moment when it connected with them in that way. And I thought that was so interesting because it's not an internal thing anymore. It's your ability to actually spread, to like breathe life behind this idea into other people where you're like the inception of the idea into someone else, you see it in their face. You and I have this deeply, which is a need to share with other people. Yeah. I thought everybody was like this. I have friends who they just figure something out for themselves and they're totally Gucci. Deeply fulfilled. They're deeply that. fulfilled. For me, the fulfillment doesn't happen until I share it. Sharing is where the fulfillment yeah. comes. I wonder why that is. I wonder what that is like a personality trait or personality type that creates that need for uh, the connection in order to feel the fulfillment around it. Yeah. But I, I mean, I benefited dramatically from being around retelling family and culture and I feel so grateful for that, by the way. They got really lucky with a set of circumstances where COVID hit. I was writing. Things took off. It was the right time. You know, I uh, had that conversation with a friend that sparked me to quit my job that led to me moving back to the East Coast that, you know, my wife and I were fortunate to get pregnant with our son. That changed how I thought about the world. Like all of these things along the way that it's so much craziness that somehow led to me feeling this really deep sense of fulfillment that... I get to have a conversation like this and call it work. <laughs> I mean, you're, you you must feel crazy getting to do things like this. I mean, it is the most unbelievable privilege in the world, earned privilege, but the most unbelievable privilege in the world to get to do something like this on a Saturday morning and call it work. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I mean, the thing that I think is very hard is to have the people in your life who can help you figure out what it is that you're actually gifted at. That's the first thing. And then the second is to have the courage to say, this is something I would like to be gifted at, but I'm not gifted at that. And then once you find those two things to then be able to chase the things that are unique and that are true to your gifts and lack of gifts instead of the expectations of your parents and of your friends and of society and of the media to do something that is unique and distinct instead of doing what I feel like how you were feeling working in private equity, which is far more standard coming out of a place like Stanford than being an online creator. Mm -hmm. We also live in the most amazing time in history to do this. You know, the, the walls of credentialism are permanently cracked and being torn down on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And you can create credibility around something without having to go get a $200,000 degree. Mm -hmm. James Clear is not credible to talk about habits because he has a degree in science from some university. He's credible to talk about habits because he built an audience of a million people that followed him for ideas, advice, and science on habits prior to him selling a book that has sold 10 million copies on habits. Mm -hmm. It's not because he has a degree from somewhere. He's some like 80-year-old doctor that's been studying habits his whole life, which previously was the thing. And I'm sure he got shit along the way from people mm -hmm. who said like, why are you credible to talk about habits? So I saw someone tweet at me the other day um, that 
someone like I, I often I basically read anything that people send at me because I try to respond to things and especially the criticisms because I'm curious like okay what's the negative feedback what is it like what's the essence of this and someone said there's an older uh, older woman said she was tired of my shtick I yeah that was what she said she was tired of my shtick and I, we should do like a read mean tweets thing it'd be funny but she said she was tired of my shtick and that I have no credibility to talk about uh to talk about goal setting or uh, achievement. And I got the biggest laugh of my entire life about it. Uh, she said goal setting and fitness. Those were the two things that I didn't have credibility in her mind to talk about. And I got such a good laugh out of it. And I replied, I sent her a DM. So I didn't reply public. I sent her a DM and I just said, I really appreciate the, the, the feedback and the candor. But I so dramatically disagree with that because literally all I've been doing my entire life is setting goals and achieving them around sports and fitness. <laughs> like those are actually, if there are two things in my life that I am credible to talk about, it's that. Like I'm not credible maybe to talk about a lot of other things, but those are two of like the things I'm most credible because I've been doing it. Mm -hmm. So I don't need a degree. Yeah, I don't need a degree in goal setting. I don't need to have written a book on goal setting. I don't need, you know, a bunch of like scientists to say that I'm the goal setting guru. I've literally been living that and I have proof. Like I have stats to show that I have done that my entire life that I can give you if you want to see them. And a lot of people read the things and have created goals and achieved them around those things based on the ideas that I've shared. So I don't need the degree. I don't need those things. There's proof in the entire world, both from myself and from people that have engaged with it to do that. And so my point with that is we live in an amazing time where you can create your own credibility mm -hmm. without going to school, without getting the degree, without being 80 years old and having spent your entire life in a thing. You create it by what you're putting out into the world. Mm -hmm. What's your credibility? Read my stuff. Yeah, read it. There's, my credibility is that there's a million people that read and benefit from the stuff that I'm giving them on those exact topics. And the market will tell you if I'm no longer credible because they won't get value from it. And if they're not getting value from it, then no, I'm not credible. And I'll tell you that I'm not credible to talk about it. I'm not credible to talk about a whole lot of things, but you don't see me write about them then. Sorry, that gets me fired up. <laughs> <laughs> We're done, baby. Yeah. It was great to finally meet you. That was fun. That was awesome.